Welcome to the Brass Spittoon, the podcast of the Front Porch Republic. We'll chew on issues timeless and timely with a focus on place, limits, and liberty. I'm your host, John Murdoch. In September of 2022, after two years of pandemic preemptions, the Front Porch Republic Conference was again a thing. Fittingly, the theme was After Virtual, The Art of Recovering Lost Goods. The first session focused on what many of us did or didn't do on the first day of the week while COVID raged, namely, go to church. We hear from three presenters. First, Grove City College professor Carl Truman kicks things off on his home campus. He is followed by Gregory Hogg, an Orthodox priest and faculty member at Grand Valley State University. And the session concludes with Charlie Cotherman, a church planter who is focused on ministry in rural America. Here's Carl Truman. It's a pleasure to be with you uh, all this morning. Uh, I make an apology in advance. I typically despise people who pretty much turn up for their own paper and then disappear. Uh, But I'm going to have to do that uh, today, or at least at lunchtime. My wife got back from three weeks in Scotland yesterday, so uh, she'd like to see me. So I hope you'll uh, indulge me that I head home at uh, at lunchtime. Uh, I want to speak, well, two things really uh, are shaping what I want to say uh, this morning. First of all, uh, I've been playing around in my own head with the, the question of the impact of technology on Christianity for quite a while, a question that I think became rather pressing during the time of COVID. Uh, and the second thing that sort of connects to this, I'm not going to intend, I don't intend to address it quite as directly, but uh, the second uh, issue I want to reflect on is uh, sort of indirectly is, is modernity or Protestantism's fault? Uh, that's a question that comes up with remarkable regularity uh, when I speak. Uh, I, I write for First Things online magazine regularly, and I remember when the, com- when the comment sections were open, uh, about a third of the comments were just abusive, uh, and a third of the comments usually said, yeah, Truman, but everything you're criticizing here is Protestantism's fault. Uh, so those sort of the two questions that, that circulate in my mind quite a lot. Uh, to address the second one first... And that's where, tangentially, it's addressed by what I'm going to say this morning. I think the the problem with trying to blame Protestantism for all of modernity's ills is it takes too narrow and intellectual a view of the way society and culture has developed. Uh, The printing press changes everything. And that's why I find some contemporary uh, Catholic thinkers who think that the answer to modernity is somehow to return to a sort of medieval synthesis less than compelling because they're asking us to return to a world that no longer exists. Uh, As I, I like to goad my Catholic friends, one of the big differences, of course, is that today uh, we all choose our religions. Uh, You choose to be a Catholic, which is a very Protestant thing to do. But there's no way of getting out from under that. So I really want to zero in on on technology this morning. Uh, For many years, I taught uh, three 
complete and self-contained church history courses, one on the early church, one on the Middle Ages, one on the Reformation. Uh, I was only actually qualified to teach on the Reformation, but I did teach the other two. And in the early church course, my favorite lecture uh, was that had the title, How to Take Over an Empire. And I used to sell it to the students. By the time uh, you've listened to my lecture, you will be equipped to go out and take over any empire that takes your fancy. The answer to how to take over an empire was twofold. One, you come to grip the imagination of the people with a certain shape of time. And two, you come to grip the imagination of a people with a certain understanding of space. The lecture, of course, that I gave was on the fourth century. And what I looked at in the fourth century was how time and space came to be structured or ordered along Christian lines. Uh, We have the emergence of the liturgical calendar uh, as a way of regulating or understanding the rhythm of time. Liturgical calendars, of course, are very important. Think of your own national calendar, uh, how the national calendar is calibrated with great events from American history, constantly reminding you that you are Americans. Uh, Space in the fourth century as well comes to be highly contested and ultimately taken over by Christianity. Uh, I would particularly look in this course at the struggles of Ambrose of Milan in the latter part of the fourth century, Uh, the struggles over the spiritual ownership of churches. Should he surrender churches to the Valentinians? Should he hand over a church to the Arians? Uh, And of course, in the wider Roman context, should the statue of the goddess Nike stand in the Senate? The battle over space is engaged rather dramatically. So what we see with the emergence of Christendom, we might say, in the fourth century is struggles over time and space. And by the end of the fourth century, time and space have been thoroughly Christianized. I want to jump forward now to the Reformation to reflect upon how technology really reshapes that issue. And I want to do so by comparing uh, the beginnings of the Reformation in Wittenberg and in Zurich. Probably most of you are familiar with the beginning of the Reformation in Wittenberg, the famous nailing of the 95 Theses by Martin Luther to the castle door. I want to reflect for a few moments on that event. There are some historians, of course, who uh, think that it didn't happen, but we'll ignore them for the sake of argument today. We'll assume that it happened and reflect upon the significance of it. Well, first of all, there's the identity of Martin Luther. He is a medieval friar. He's a member of the Augustinian order. He has a quintessentially medieval calling. Indeed, when I teach on the Reformation, I always go out of my way in the first class on the Reformation uh, to uh, emphasize the different way Luther experienced the world to the way we do today, or even the way Calvin did in the 16th century. Luther is a medieval man. The world is very enchanted. If you have never walked through the woods and worried about being kidnapped by the hobgoblins and taken to a cave under the hills, you have never walked through the woods late at night as Luther walked through the woods late at night. When he has this table talk comment on uh, the wall falling over and nearly killing him because the devil was the other side and pushed it over, he truly believed the devil was the other side of the wall and pushed over the wall over in a vain attempt to kill him. 
He's a medieval man pursuing a medieval calling. He's working at a medieval university. Now, the University of Wittenberg was only founded in 1501. It is a, a new foundation, but its curriculum is profoundly medieval. It is not a Renaissance university. It is not a university that has been dramatically reshaped by the impact of the work of, say, an Erasmus. It is a medieval university with a medieval curriculum. What Luther is doing is advertising a medieval debate. Uh, though popular Victorian art has the nailing of the 95 Theses as a traumatic moment of protest, in fact, it wasn't really. Luther was using the standard advertising idiom of the day, albeit probably in something of a bad mood, to call for debate. He was doing nothing particularly controversial in putting up a sign on the church door at Wittenberg. And he was calling for a medieval debate about a medieval issue. The medieval issue being indulgences. He's wanting a medieval debate at a medieval university as a medieval man about a medieval practice advertised, as I've said, in a medieval way. There is an irony, in other words, in some ways, that the Reformation, which we often look at as the sort of the birth of the modern age, uh, being historically ascribed to a quintessentially medieval man doing a medieval thing. Is Luther the first of the moderns or the last of the medievals? I think you could make a case for saying he's both. Let's switch over then to Zurich. Zurich is somewhat late in getting on the, the full Reformation bandwagon, a, a source of continued embarrassment for uh, Huldrych Zwingli, the great reformer of Zurich, as he falls out with Luther throughout the 1520s. The formal start of the Zurich Reformation is typically considered to be Lent, 1522. A group of men meet in the workshop of a man called Christoph Froschauer. Froschauer is the uh, preeminent printer in Zurich. Printers in the Reformation tended to be fairly radical individuals. Printing was a risky operation. You could be held to account for things that you printed, a little bit like tech today. Uh, I used to wonder, why is it that all the techie people I know are libertarians? Uh, is it that libertarians are attracted to tech, or is it that tech changes people into libertarians? I think it's shifted in the last few years. But certainly in the 16th century, printers were by and large radical people. They were engaged in the latest technology, and they were doing interesting and disturbing things with that technology. These men gather, and what they do is they cook up a saucepan of sausages during the Lenten fast, and they eat the sausages. That is typically regarded as the beginning of the Zurich Reformation. It seems an almost comical thing in retrospect. Holdrich Zwingli is there, the great reformer of Zurich, though uh, in his account of the incident, he makes very clear that he did not eat any of the sausages. He's not willing to be that radical at that point. What's the significance of this? These men are breaking the Lenten fast. They're breaking the Lenten fast. And that is, I think, a more powerful gesture, a more radical gesture, than nailing of the 95 Theses. Why do I think that? Because what you're seeing here is how new technology, and if you're a Marxist, you might say the new economy, is clashing with the old model of time. The Lenten fast is an inconvenience to a printer. 
If you're a farmer, you can get away with it. I grew up in farmland. Now I live sort of in farmland. And I'm well aware in Western Pennsylvania, when I go out my bike now, as when I was a, a young boy, I would go out on my bike and there were certain points in the year where the fields were full of activity. And there were other periods of the year when I didn't see a farmer from one day to the next. Farming followed the rhythm of the seasons. Printing does not. Printing requires a regular workday and therefore a regular diet for those engaged in that workday. What you see here is the new technology colliding with the old. Time moves from the seasonal calendar and the seasonally rhythmic pattern of life to the weekly and the regular. External authority, traditional external authority, is being smashed by the emerging calendar. Time is transformed by technology. Church authority is being challenged and checked by the tools of modernity. Christopher Hale, in an article written in the early 1960s, The Uses of English Sabbatarianism, uh, makes the observation that Sabbatarianism, the strict one day in six rest that destroys the church calendar uh, in England, arises, interestingly enough, within the most advanced economy in Europe, England, where the agrarian economy is becoming far less important compared to the productive and the mercantile economy. Hold that in your mind and jump forward then to the present day. What I think I've established, or I hope I've established in this comparison is this, technology changes stuff, and it changes stuff dramatically for the church. We live today at a time of what the German critical theorist Hartmut Rosa calls social acceleration. His point really is something like this. In the Reformation, the invention of one technological uh, phenomenon, the printing press, uh, led to 150 years of social instability, turmoil, bloody warfare, etc. in Europe. It took Europe 150 years to adapt itself to what the printing press did to society. Rose's point about the present day is this. We get a technological development like the printing press, if not every few months, at least every few years. And we do not have time to adapt as cultures to what that does before the next one hits the shore. What this does, Hartman Rosa says, is this. It creates this feeling of vertigo or acceleration. We simply can't keep up. Conscious, the president's just to my left, but uh, you know, my entire academic life has been spent learning software packages that solve the problems that the last one didn't solve every three or four years. And I hate software packages. I use the internet to word process and order stuff from Amazon. Other than that, I'm just not interested. Uh, it gives people like me, and I was the last guy at my school to study Latin and the last guy not to do computer studies, literally the last guy in both categories, it, it gives me a feeling of vertigo. I constantly feel that just as I've got a handle on something, it's torn away from me. And once again, I'm no longer in control. That's social acceleration. Think about what that does today for the notions of time and space. Technology has completely transformed notions of time and space. My wife, uh, this time yesterday, was in London Heathrow waiting to catch her plane. Today she's with me. Couldn't have done that 100 years ago, let alone 400 years ago.
She can uh, Zoom with her mum this afternoon and see her mum's face this afternoon. Probably couldn't have done that 10 or 15 years ago. She can do that today. Space has been completely transformed. Time has been completely transformed. The sense of place and connection has been completely transformed. And where I want to end this paper is not by offering any solutions, but by highlighting the challenges that perhaps might form the basis of the Q&A and the discussion afterwards. What does this mean for Christianity? What does it mean for Christianity? This has a dramatic impact, I think, on Christian traditions. Most obviously, I think, it's going to present a challenge to highly liturgical traditions that have a high view of time over the cycle of the year. Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, even uh, uh, observant Anglicans, if that's a term, I'm not sure. I know English Anglicans tend not to bother with liturgy, but I know liturgy over here is unrightfully uh, held in high esteem by Anglicans. But even for the Reformed, my own tradition, uh, the Dutch-German tradition of Reformed uh, theology places a uh, high emphasis upon annual catechesis, going through the Heidelberg Catechism rhythmically over the period of a year. Uh, even the Presbyterian tradition with its six-day, one-day pattern has a pattern of time. But what does technology do to that? I think as technology colonizes our time and reshapes it, it becomes increasingly difficult to carve out holy time. If the church, and I hope this is the case in all church traditions, if the church is meant to be a portion of time that is a little taste of eternity on earth, what does it mean when that time becomes thoroughly colonized? I witnessed it in a rather grim form with my, my youngest son, who for some years was a senior consultant at Deloitte's just outside DC. And he would work uh, an eight uh, to eight day regularly. Uh, uh, I'm an academic, but I always kind of roll my eyes when academics complain about the quality of their life. We have a great life compared to almost anybody else out there, as far as I can see, certainly compared to my son. But not only did he work eight to eight, he then had to be on call at 3 a.m. in the morning till 8 a.m. because his clients were Japanese and may need to speak to him when the markets, etc., opened or closed in Japan. Time and space completely discombobulated for him. What are the implications of that for the church? What are the implications of community? I've spent the last uh, two years going crisscrossing the country, uh, talking about LGBTQ stuff. And when I'm asked what the answer is, uh, one of the parts of the answer is say, well, the church needs to be a strong community. The question is, how and can the church be a strong community when time and space are so discombobulated? Can worship survive? So I want to end by saying, by really just, just flagging up uh, the point here. Technology changes things. It doesn't just make stuff more efficient. We can see that wherever we care to look at technology. We can see it transforms life. It transforms the way people imagine the world. It does it very dramatically at the Reformation. It is doing it very dramatically for us today. It's great to meet here and talk about the importance of space and location. The question is, is that talk even meaningful in the highly technological world in which we live? 
Thank you for listening so patiently. Next is Gregory Hogg. I think uh, unique among the panelists today of being an alumnus of Grove City College, I graduated a few years before President McNulty and I was telling some of the students out there when I went here, we wrote on clay tablets with <laughs> steel st styli. Anyway, the outbreak of COVID raised an issue that Christians have had to confront periodically for the past 2,000 years, the issue of how to respond in times of plague. Early in the history of the church, pagan authors noted that Christians alone would stay in plague-stricken cities to care for the sick and bury the dead. They did so without any concern for their own lives because they were convinced that death had been conquered in the resurrection of Christ. From that time to this, Christians have faced other great plagues, most notably the Black Death, which came initially during the reign of Justinian and then again in the mid-14th century. Over four years in the middle of the 14th century, conservative estimates are that 45 to 50 percent of Europe's population perished. And yet the work of the church went on throughout these times. In some cases, the practices of the church were slightly modified. Under certain circumstances in the West, for example, confession was made to lay folk. But babies were baptized, the Eucharist was celebrated, and many priests risked their own lives to take communion to the dying. There are two things different with our recent pandemic. First, our knowledge of how disease spreads and of medicine generally has increased greatly. That is both a blessing and a curse, to coin a phrase from Monk. Second, does anybody remember Monk? I don't know. <laughs> uh, second, the internet now permits people to communicate virtually, suggesting to many people a reduced need for the personal contact implied in holding church services. Let me address each of these in turn. When people today look back on ancient and medieval plagues, frequent mention is made of their ignorance and their lack of awareness that things we take for granted now. Now we know, it's said, that bacteria and viruses are the cause of those diseases. And we know now the vectors of transmission. By the way, I don't know if you caught that controversy uh, in, from Western Michigan about a 76-year-old um, professor from, was it in Ferris State, I think, who referred to his students as vectors of disease. <laughs> it was like, you should retire if you feel that way. Anyway, uh, in some cases, we have treatments to mitigate or relieve the sufferings of the afflicted. But we often forget how little we know and how similar human nature is from then till now. To cite but one example, at the outbreak of COVID, Dr. Fauci said that masks were worthless. Later, there was even talk of double masking or triple masking. Why the change? I can think of two possibilities. Either he didn't know at the beginning that masks were effective, although that remains in some doubt, 
Or, as it seems more likely, he was perpetrating the noble lie theory that made its first appearance in the works of Plato. Fearing a run on masks, Dr. Fauci said they were of no value so as to make the limited supply available to frontline workers. We were often told to follow the science, but anyone with the slightest awareness of the scientific method should know how limited its claim to knowledge is. We don't know where we're going, and whatever steps we take should be taken with care and humility and an openness to other ideas and approaches, a stance which was almost completely lacking. The second thing is there's the phenomenon of iatrogenic diseases, cases in which the treatment itself brings on complications and death. Early on in COVID, a lot of emphasis was placed on the need for ventilators. That talk disappeared as it became clear that ventilators didn't help and the death rates were way higher for those who were put on them. Nassim Taleb notes that in ancient times, the sick would be taken to temples and cared for by priests. Though the pagan deities had no power to cure, at least they protected the patients from the poor state of medical knowledge and practice at that time. And Taleb puzzles as to whether it might not be good to return to that practice. Third, in our time, we have the ability to centralize and control the approach to disease. Whole apartment towers in Shanghai have rung out with the cries of those who have been locked in during outbreaks. Cell phone tracking makes it possible for police to find and arrest those who've gone beyond their safe spaces. A few weeks ago, we had Canadian friends visit us. Despite the fact that COVID vaccines are ineffective against the strains we're now experiencing, Canadian rules at, at treated the husband who's been vaxxed different from his wife who hasn't been vaxxed. She was required to uh, uh, stay in place at two weeks after she got back to Canada. The ironic thing is they both had COVID when they were visiting us. It's not only our knowledge of disease that's different this time, it's also the wide availability of virtual communication through the internet. FaceTime, Google Meetings, and Zoom have allowed things to happen long distance that would have been unthinkable even 10 years ago. This past November, I was slated to speak at a Dostoevsky conference in Omsk, Russia for his 200th birthday. Due to an outbreak of COVID, my trip was canceled. No problem, I was able to give the talk over Zoom from the comfort of my home office. I think it was at midnight though. <laughs> Video conferencing, of course, has come with its own set of problems, some of them mundane, like the boxer shorts, shirt and tie outfit that many wore. Some of them quite funny, like the attorney who told the judge, I'm not a cat, Your Honor. <laughs> and some bordering on obscenity, like the CNN contributor who had to resign due to other activities he was involved in during a Zoom call. <laughs> but overall, I have to say, <laughs> overall, I have to say, oh, funny, I think it's funny. Anyway, overall, it's, it's helped the church with respect at least to meetings, right? Because who wants to have to travel if you can do it over Zoom? That's fine. 
Given then our increased knowledge of illness and our improved technology, can the central acts of Christian practice, that is, worship and the mysteries, become merely virtual? The simple answer is no. And with that, I'll end my paper. No. (laughs) (laughs) For the core of the Christian faith is the incarnation. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Without ceasing to be what he was, divine, the second person of the blessed Trinity became what he was not, human, in the womb of his ever-virgin mother. The incarnation is the ultimate example of localism. When the word became flesh, he left nothing behind. He joined his entire divinity to his humanity in his one undivided person. The so-called extra-Calvinisticum, and I don't even know if Calvinists believe that, that is, the teaching that there is that of the Son's deity which was not made flesh, is no extra at all, but rather it leads to a denial of the Incarnation. We read in the book of Acts, in the first book, O Theophilus, I wrote to you about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. Implied in those words is the fact that the church is the continuation of Christ's incarnation and his work. And so the one whom Paul encountered on the Damascus road says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Paul himself calls the church the body of Christ and the fullness of him who fills all things. When I say church here, of course, I mean the continuation of that body begun at Pentecost and organically extending for the past 2,000 years. Christ has but one body, and it is visible. Writing to the Corinthians, Paul says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. This is not a mere figure of speech, for in Hebrews he exhorts, let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Just as the incarnation is the core of the Christian faith, so also the weekly assembly of Christ's body, who eat his flesh and drink his blood, is the core act of the church. And so the church fulfills in truth that which Feuerbach spoke in irony. You are what you eat. Virtual worship, so-called then, is a dismemberment literally of the body of Christ and a denial of the incarnation. One is reminded of the words of St. Ignatius of Antioch about the docetics, quote, They say that the word only seemed to suffer. They only seem to be Christians. For this reason, then, virtual worship is no worship at all. Charlie Cotherman. Well, the good thing about coming third is you get to see how everything works together before you go into your paper, and there's a lot of overlap. The bad thing is you get to follow two great great speakers, so I'll give it my best shot, and I'll say in advance that I, I come at this as a participant observer, that 
Um, these questions are very alive for me and how to handle these situations are very alive for me. So we're gonna start in 2 Kings 4. One wonders what may have been going through the prophet's mind when he caught a glimpse of the woman from Shunem coming toward him. For Elisha, interactions with this woman from Shunem usually took a different trajectory. Typically, it was he and his servant Gehazi who walked to her house, where she and her husband kept the room ready for his use whenever his peripatetic life took him their way. Seeing her well-known gait and silhouette on the horizon, Elisha may have thought about the hospitality she had shown him, or perhaps his thoughts strayed to the sun the Lord had provided for her and her aged husband as an answer to his prayers. Today, however, Elisha seemed to note that something was wrong. He instructed Gehazi to run and meet her and inquire if all is well. The answer, as Elijah seemed to intuit, though the Lord had hidden the full reality from him, was no. All was not well. Falling to the prophet's feet, her posture said directly what her words only alluded to. Her son was dead. She had come in the utmost haste, without even telling her husband the full reason for her journey, to force this man of God to face the reality of her distress the enormity of her loss. The events that ensue might seem a bit amusing were they not situated amid such deep desperation and despair. Elijah, faced with the woman's grief, acts by immediately sending his servant Gehazi to the woman's house. Gehazi leaves with Elijah's staff in strict instructions, don't talk to anyone, don't greet anyone, and place this staff on the boy's face. Elijah seems to think that his role is finished, but there's a problem. The woman refuses to leave without him. So Elisha finds himself journeying with her back to her house where her son, despite Gehazi's efforts to wield Elisha's staff as a medium of healing, remains dead. What happens next rings with an almost shocking physicality in our modern ears. Elijah, seeing the son of promise dead in the room on the very bed they had graciously set aside for his use, closes the door prays with Gehazi, and then stretched himself out on the boy, and in the words of the ESV, put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands. And as he did, the child became warm. It was a hopeful sign, but the miracle was only partially accomplished. Elisha repeated the steps again, the prayers, the physical overlaying of hand on hand, eye on eye, and this time, the Bible tells us the child sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. He was alive. When I started thinking about this talk on church in a digital age, on church after virtual, I found my mind drawn to the stories of resurrection in Scripture. And this isn't because I think somehow that the church is dead and needs reviving. We know the gates of hell won't stand against God's church. However, I do think these miracles of God's bringing life in the face of death are among the strongest reminders of the power and goodness of God and his kingdom. And that's not all. They also highlight the physicality of the kingdom. We're not merely things that think. We're souls with bodies. The resurrection stories in scripture are consistent reminders of this reality. Reading each of them again in preparation for today, I was struck by their sheer physicality and the role presence and proximity play in these miracles. Think about the three in the Old Testament. The one I mentioned with Elijah, there's another one in 1 Kings with Elijah where he does a very similar thing. 
And then the other resurrection that happens in the Old Testament is when they throw a corpse on top of Elisha's grave and it touches his bones and revives. Proximity and presence. When we get to the New Testament, the role of presence in resurrection accounts continues. Think about Jesus and the three resurrections he does in his ministry. Now, we know that Jesus can heal from a distance. We have the centurion's servant in Luke 7. But most of the time, almost every time, Jesus chooses to heal in person. He chooses to resurrect in person. So in Mark 5, we get Jairus' daughter. Jesus speaks to her, but he also holds her hand. The widow of Nain's son comes out on a stretcher. Jesus walks up to the buyer, touches it, and then says, Arise. And then the most dramatic example of Jesus' linking of presence with resurrection probably occurs in the case of Lazarus. In this final and most dramatic of Jesus' recorded resurrections, the evangelist notes that Jesus intentionally avoided coming sooner. What's also implied is that Jesus also avoids healing or even resurrecting Lazarus at a distance. Four days after Lazarus' death, Jesus arrives in Bethany, and though the actual act of resurrection in this case involves only a verbal command, Lazarus, come forth. Jesus has chosen to make this miracle one of presence, even though it would have been more efficient, easier on some level for both him and for Mary and Martha to simply send a command from a distance. Maybe he could have done it over Zoom. The power of presence is not only apparent in these biblical resurrection stories. If we move from the dramatic life and death miracle of resurrection to the range of Jesus' miracles of healing and exorcism, as well as the way he chose to teach and raise up disciples, we find the theme of embodied presence runs through the vast majority, almost all of these stories. In the Gospels, to follow Jesus is, in many cases, to literally follow him. Disciples ask him, where are you staying? He says, come and see, in John 1. And to experience his healing is, in most cases, to physically experience his goodness in word and deed. How many times does he reach out and touch or put mud on eyes? In so doing, we see the goodness of the incarnation, not just in Jesus' nativity or his sacrificial death on the cross, but as a thoroughgoing feature of his way of life, his vocation to usher in the goodness, the shalom of the kingdom of God. The same patterns continue in the early church. While we do hear of some at-a-distance miracles, like Paul's handkerchiefs healing, which now you can buy handkerchiefs to supposedly heal all over the internet, and we have at-a-distance efforts at discipleship, like Paul's epistles, which we do value, most miracles we hear about in Acts and most discipling relationships in the New Testament are rooted in physical presence as it works out in friendship, in families, in ministry partnerships, and in the local assembly of believers. It's one of the reasons we get all these lists at the beginning of Paul's epistles. They're real people for him. Discipleship, like miraculous healing, is not dependent on sound doctrine or good preaching alone. As a preacher, I need to hear that. We need to hear that in the Western church. To follow in the way of Jesus, indeed to be a people of the kingdom of God in the sense we see both in the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, is to take part in an embodied community where the goodness of the kingdom is not only taught, but caught. What does all this have to do with ministry or rural ministry? I work with the Project on Rural Ministry here at Grove City College. What's it have to do with that following the events of the last three years? Since the onset of the pandemic in early 2020, my experience in ministry and my conversations with other pastors have convinced me that the church neglects, overlooks, or simply dismisses the power and primacy of presence and embodied discipleship to its great disadvantage and peril. 
The reality is that as COVID brought our cities to a standstill, it simultaneously pushed the acclimation of streaming and video media in churches, large and small, into high speed. In the initial weeks of COVID, large churches, many of which provided video streams already, further invested in and perfected their digital delivery. And small churches, like the one I pastor, engaged in trial and error real-time experiments in videography and digital media. If pastors were lucky, they could draw on tech-savvy members of their congregation to help them coordinate this overnight video revolution in the church. For other pastors, COVID shutdowns forced them to acquire videography skills themselves and equipment as fast as they could. I can distinctly remember pastors almost like celebrating or gloating on social media about getting this like wireless radio uh, transmitter like they use at drive-in theaters for Easter service. We were just scrambling to get the right tech. At the Project on Rural Ministry here at Grove City College, the pandemic forced us to drastically change our programming and think about new ways to help pastors in our three cohorts, which stretch from southwestern New York through western PA down into western Virginia, to think about how we could help them and serve them. We decided to offer our pastors micro-grants for tech, which they readily accepted, so they could invest in new computers and cameras for their churches. We also invested at tech at my church, uh, on, a, on a local level. In the early weeks, we bought a new video camera at Oil City Vineyard, a high-end gaming computer called the Predator, which roars when you open it up, and video editing software, which I then spent hours attempting to use. Were these the right responses to that cultural moment? Looking back, I think the answer is yes, even if this affirmation is, I admit, tentative, due to how the initial months have continued to shape life in our local churches. But given how many decisions leaders at every level were being asked to make during 2020, I find myself always inclined to err on the side of grace when evaluating the day-to-day -day decisions of leaders like pastors. Most were doing their absolute best to love their neighbors and felt that the rapid adoption of tech was a necessary part of this process. But my tendency to give pastors the benefit of the doubt in decisions that they, that we, made during that fraught year that lasted, in my mind, from March 2020 at least through January 6, 2021, doesn't extend to the assessment of the impact these months and the large-scale digitization, uh, the, the impact they had on the large-scale digitization of life in our congregations. I know that a conference like this, After Virtual, is titled After Virtual, but my experience in the local church, my experience as a member of the Project on Rural Ministry, my experience as a historian of American evangelicalism, lead me to believe that there's really no widespread after virtual moment that we can look to. In much of American Christianity, digital church is here to stay. The best we can do is consider its implications and chart a local course that emphasizes the kind of embodied life-on-life -life discipleship we see in Scripture. And here's where I want to tie in some of our research. There are a number of factors that make assessing the implications of this digital turn difficult in our churches. In the first 18 months of the pandemic, many pastors found themselves looking at quantifiable aspects of congregational life with mixed feelings. Based on research we did involving pastors in our PRM cohorts in the spring of 2021, we found that while about a quarter of pastors who took part in the survey had experienced a downturn in weekly giving, Nearly three-quarters of the pastors surveyed said that throughout the year past after COVID, their congregation had either maintained and actually many more had said, said that their congregation had even experienced a significant increase. 
about three quarters either maintained or experienced an increase. Very quantifiable statistic. But even as giving was up, other quantifiable aspects of congregational life were less encouraging. Foremost among these concerns was the persistence of low attendance at weekly worship. While about 10% of the pastors we surveyed noted that attendance had moved in a positive direction, nearly 70%, 68% of responding pastors noted that attendance had moved in a negative direction. And as we talked with these pastors and other pastors in the region, we found that most churches had experienced what they estimated to be about a 25 to 30% decrease in attendance. My personal experience confirms these reports. While our week-to-week giving at Oil City Vineyard trended up during the first 18 months following the pandemic, our in-person attendance dropped significantly, initially by about 50%, and then it plateaued out at 25% down. I talked with pastors in the local ministerium and our denomination. I found that these, the overwhelming consensus among pastors in the region was that these were similar traits in their churches. As pastors sought to understand what was leading to these shifts, the one variable that seemed to offer a way of making sense of these attendance trends was the availability of online options from live streaming on Facebook or YouTube to Zoom calls. Though most pastors admitted having little idea exactly how the number of views recorded on Facebook or YouTube translated to things like giving, discipleship, or even an intention to return one day to in-person worship, these numbers and the likes and comments and shares that came with them seemed to point to meaningful connections at some level. Surely discipleship was occurring, and surely the gospel was going out to their communities in new and powerful ways. This is innovation, right? Perhaps it was, but some pastors weren't so sure. As initial fears about the pandemic and seeming consensus around the need for social distancing and widespread shutdowns waned in the spring of 2020, Pastors watched as people in their communities and churches took to social media to voice their feelings about masks and government COVID policies. By June, a national conversation about racism added to the social tension that persisted through the highly charged 2020 presidential election. Through it all, pastors worked to help their congregations and communities not only look to God, but also to adapt to rapidly changing regulations and social unrest in their communities. Most pastors I talked to, especially if their congregation had any kind of political and theological diversity, felt like there was always a contingent, and sometimes a very vocal contingent, of folks who strongly disagreed with their approach. As longtime congregants, and in some cases friends, left after an angry email about masking, or ghosted us and faded away without a word, or took to social media in distinctly unchristian rants against everyone from political leaders to neighbors and fellow congregants. Some pastors started to question whether their current efforts were really helping create deeply formed disciples of Christ. Of course, the thinness of discipleship in American Christianity goes back much further than the COVID-19 pandemic. We can see it in trends like the consumerist sensibilities, the seeker-sensitive churches, and American Christianity in general often perpetuate. But it is still true that the social disruptions and cultural controversies of 2020 functioned almost like a greenhouse, providing ample opportunity for what had been planted previously to grow, to multiply, and like an invasive species, threaten to choke out seeds of true discipleship like the love of neighbor, obedience to God, and fruits of the Spirit like kindness and gentleness. All the while, pastors like me kept preaching, sometimes to a camera, sometimes to a few scattered congregants in a camera. Through it all, folks were tuning in, at least according to 
Facebook, and YouTube, and according to the random congregants we met at Walmart who assured us that they had been watching faithfully for months online. (laughs) Folks were tuning in online maybe, but they weren't turning up as frequently in the spaces where real friendships can grow and where real life-on-life discipleship can happen, where the faith can not only be taught, but also caught. So what do we do? The short answer is I'm not 100% sure. But broadly speaking, my hunch is that each church must make these decisions of how they handle tech based on an understanding of both scripture and its local context and congregational demographics. But what I can say with confidence is that the way of the kingdom is a way marked by relational presence. And while the constant temptation of humanity is to take a shortcut that attempts to achieve the desired end without the work or complexities of life-on-life presence. Whether we pastor large churches or small, suburban churches or rural churches surrounded by cornfields, we're often tempted, like Elisha, to sacrifice the power of presence for an easier fix. Where Elisha sent his staff, we send our well-intentioned live streams, our texts, and our Facebook posts. And then we seem surprised when the result of our effort proves both ineffective and unsatisfying. Contrary to the myth of our technological society, technique cannot save us. When we in the church, or when pastors like myself, think about the way forward, my hope is that we speak not only the truth with clarity, which I hope we do, but that we also actively live out the implications of the truth in our presence among our fellow congregants and neighbors And then thirdly, that we invite them to do the same with us. This seems to me to be the way of Jesus. When he wanted to take the kingdom to the lost sheep of Israel, he didn't send a teaching. He sent people, two by two, to make disciples through the slow, messy, and deeply formative means of life-on-life relationships. And in doing this, he was just doing what he had seen his father doing, the sending God who first sent himself through the Son and is now present with us through the Spirit. May it be so of our churches. Our thanks again to Carl Truman, Gregory Hogg, and Charlie Cotherman. Until next time, thanks for pulling up a pew. Find your way home Find your way home